podcast. We are a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and our aim is to be a diverse family of believers living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. This sermon is part of our Advent 2022 series, Far As the Curse is Found. If you would like to find out more information about Emmanuel, visit our website at emmanuelbirmingham.com. Thank you for listening and Merry Christmas. church. Um, Christmas Day is a week away, which is kind of hard to believe. Um, Yeah, so uh, it's upon us. It's upon us. Um, This is week four as well of Advent. As Cody mentioned before, it's the week we lit the peace candle. Um, Just thinking about Christ as the giver, bringer of peace. So um, our preaching passage this morning uh, is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. If you're a note taker, just a heads up, there will uh, not be any notes today. It's a free-for-all with notes, so you are welcome to take as many or as little notes as you want. Um, but our, again, our preaching text this morning is Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you for your grace and your mercy and your compassion, your kindness to us. Thank you that Christ is the bringer of peace. He's the prince of peace. So Lord, give us peace now in this moment. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In Act 2, a scene 2 of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, in the dialogue between Romeo and Juliet, a famous balcony scene. It reads this way. I'm not going to act it, all right? I'm just going to read it. Um, Juliet, she says, Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore are... I messed this line up a million times we were studying. Oh, Romeo, there's a lot of R's here. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. 
Romeo, doff thy name. And for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. So what is in a name? You know, can a name be refused? You know, Capulet or Montague just doffed, you know, to use Juliet's choice of words here. Is a name something more? Does a name sometimes describe something deeper and more intimate? Does it communicate something about ourselves that isn't as easily disentangled from who we are? You know, Dale Carnegie, the famous uh, self-help author of How to Win Friends and Influence People, 1936, he wrote it. He said this, There's no sweeter sound to one's ear than the sound of his name. Once you know someone's name, you've planted the seed for a potential relationship to be born. You know, names are, names are powerful things. And names can have a significant impact on how people live their lives. I mean, names carry with them history, right? I mean, sometimes history for good and sometimes history for bad. You know, I think about my mom's maiden name, Martin. You know, when my grandmother passed away, I've mentioned her to you before a few years ago. I, uh, she was born in Westmoreland and married into Martins, the Martins of North Georgia in particular. And I remember sitting at, at, with my grandparent, at my grandparents' house when she passed away with some of my great aunts and uncles from the Martin side of the family. And we were just remembering my grandmother, and they were telling me stories about the North Georgia Martins. And I heard stories of a family of bootleggers uh, in the early, mid-1950s where moonshine was like the family business in the hills of the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, when the sheriff in White County, Georgia, began to clamp down on the moonshine business, the family business, the Martins had to get a little creative. And so I remember one of my great uncles telling me that uh, he, in order to get the moonshine across the county, he uh, went to his buddy, who was a mortician, a funeral director at the time, and he borrowed a hearse from his friend in a black suit and a hat, put an empty casket in the back of the hearse, and filled it full of moonshine, like he was transporting a body across White County to get the moonshine to the customers. Uh, and this is my family, all right? This is the North Georgia Martins. And in some weird way, I take a lot of pride in that. Um, so I'm like, yeah, entrepreneurs, you know, creative, uh, getting it done, doing what they need to do to preserve the family business. Uh, but the name Martin, it carries with it connotations, still even to this day in White County, Georgia. I mean, you mentioned the name Martin, and they have their own thoughts about what that means. Or my last name, Baker. You know, the etymology of my name is English, stems from one who baked, obviously, but it also potentially could have been given to someone who had an oven in the village, the only oven, and the village would share that oven and bake what they needed to to provide for their families. And I love that, you know, this idea that, you know, possibly my distant relatives down the line were generous and kind with what they had. You know, they, in some way, you know, there's some family pride there as well. You know, names seem to center around significant life events as well. Parents name new babies, you know, oftentimes with names that have some connotations or sentimental value. Women change their names at weddings, you know, taking on oftentimes the names of their husbands, communicating that they are now one unit instead of two. We give our names at adoptions, you know, bringing new babies into our families, bestowing upon them a new identity. We remove names in divorces, demonstrating that we're no longer identified with the one who used to be an important part of our lives. We chisel names on gravestones, 
You know, we remember a name as long as we can, even though that person is no longer physically among us. And names can also sometimes be used to describe someone's character. Now think about this time of the year, how many Scrooges show up this time of the year. I mean, that's a name. I don't have to explain to you what I mean by that. Because a name, using that name, is describing somebody's character. We often call people Christ-like. Or if somebody close to us hurts us and betrays us, sometimes we refer to them as a Judas. Our names can sometimes define us. Some of us take great pride in our names. Maybe we're named after someone we admire. or Our families, although imperfect, emulate the kind of love and care and kindness we hope to continue on in our families. Some of us feel pressure in our names. You know, we have a name bestowed upon us that carries with it great aspirations to live up to. Maybe your parents growing up reinforced that idea, telling you constantly, uh, uh, so-and-so would not act like that. Maybe the expectations have been high for you to carry on the family business or to go to a certain college or be a part of a certain organization simply because you carry a certain last name. And the pressure has been and still is mounting. Some of us feel shame in our names. Now we carry with us a name that's shared by one who's failed, made massive mistakes. Maybe we're named after someone who committed heinous acts or abandoned our families or let us down. So most of us live our lives trying to get away from our names, trying to prove that we are more than our names. Some of us maybe have even gone to great lengths to change our names maybe legally, in the courts, getting a new start, not being defined by somebody else. You know, in the Bible, names typically reflected one's character or aspects of their person. You know, Eve means the mother of the living. Jacob means deceiver, or literally one who grasped the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for a liar. Esau means hairy. You know, Ichabod, the name given to the prophet Eli's grandson, who on the day he was born, his father died, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. His name means glory has departed. For that day, most hope for Israel was lost. I mean, on and on we could go, but, the one, but one way the scriptures use names is to describe someone's person. Sometimes names are prophetic. You know, intended to communicate a message from God. Hosea's kids are good examples of this. You know, two of his three kids are named Lu Rohama and Loami, which means no mercy and not my people. As God, his mercy on Israel is about to run out, and his people are on the verge of no longer being his people. Or Isaiah, you know, the person, prophet we're studying for today, his, one of his son's names was Shear Jashub. That's a good one if you want to, um, you know, give that to your kids. But it means a remnant will return. Now, prophesying a day of exile, but also a day of return from exile. Now, sometimes names in the scriptures are aspirational. You know, someone's given a name with high hopes attached to that name. Noah means he'll give us relief from the ground, Right? an aspirational name, that maybe this guy will fix the curse of Genesis chapter 3. Peter means rock, right? Upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. Aspirational. Now, culturally, in the scriptures, naming somebody carried with it some kind of authority. You know, the one naming possesses authority over the one named. See this with Adam, naming all the animals in creation. It's this demonstration that Man has a God-given authority and dominion 
from Genesis chapter 1 over the created order. Or Jesus renaming Peter. Peter. Jesus has the authority over Peter to rename him. You see instances of scriptures in the scriptures when a new name is given that redefines a person, sets a person on a new trajectory, destiny in life. Jacob's renamed Israel. Simon renamed Peter. Saul renamed Paul. Their lives change. They're made into new people. And they have new names that reflect that. Names were and are more than letters on paper. Names carry with them great stories. Names matter. And we're going to see that in our text for today. You know, sometimes it's hard to follow as we look at our Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Sometimes it's hard to follow in Isaiah, like who's the king, like what's going on at the time the prophecy's given. I mean, already we've looked at three different kings in our text that we've studied this Advent season. But you have to remember, like Isaiah was the prophet through the reign of four kings. So week one, when we lit the first Advent candle, Isaiah was king in chapter 2. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 35, where Hezekiah was the king. And this week, Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is the king. This is Isaiah's grandson and Hezekiah's dad. So if you're following along in the four kings, you've got Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, just in the date of things. And we're now in the reign of Ahaz, and the kingdom of Israel, or Judah, really, is in dire straits. It's not good. You know, the times of prosperity and progress that we talked about a few weeks ago under Isaiah, they're over. It's over. Those days are gone. And Ahaz now reigns over the kingdom of Judah. So Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There was a civil war in Israel that divided those two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. He's reigning in Judah, the southern kingdom. And at this time in Isaiah 7, he is surrounded by enemies on every side. Every side. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7. This kind of sets the scene here. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, or Judah, that's Judah, the house of David, Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So just a brief history lesson here, and bear with me. Just a brief history lesson. The great conquering kingdom of the day in Isaiah chapter 7 is Assyria. All right? Assyria with an A. A A-S-S-Y-R-I-A. Assyria. They're in the northeastern part. I know it looks like western, but this is eastern on my, where I'm standing from. Northeastern part. Of, of the relation to Israel and Judah. And their ruler is a guy named Tiglath Pileser III, which I thought is a great name for a dog. TP3, right? Yeah. Um, but Tiglath Pileser is coming down from Assyria, and he is just dominating nations, just dominating them. And he was known as a very cruel leader. He would come down, one of his most uh, heinous acts of cruelty is he would just impale people on poles. Just impale them and leave them there in the road so people can see this is what happens when you go against the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III. Just brutal, brutal. So he's coming down towards Israel and Judah. Israel in the north, remember. So they're going to see him first, right? So Israel 
has already made the decision to turn their backs on the Lord and make an alliance with Syria, all right? Different nation, not Assyria, Syria. I know it's confusing. So Assyria and Syria. So they line up, make an allegiance with Syria, different nation, and they are now seeking to come down south, so Israel and Syria, come down south and overtake Judah and force Judah to join them so that they can fight Assyria. Follow me so far? Tracking with me? All right, great. And Ahaz is here faced with a choice, all right? Three options are set before him. Option number one, do I join forces with Assyria, Assyria and Tiglath-Pileser III, becoming a vassal nation to this cruel, cruel leader who may kill me, right, and set up his own puppet king. But if I live, I'm under the thumb of this horrible tyrant of a leader. That's option number one. Option number two is do I join forces with Israel and Syria in allegiance, which they'll probably kill me too, and set up another puppet king and then try to resist Assyria coming down from the north, or three, do I trust the Lord to deliver me? The Lord that I can't see, the Lord who has armies that I can't number, do I trust him to deliver my nation, to deliver us? I mean, these are verses seven through nine of Isaiah chapter seven, where verse nine ends with, if you're not firm in faith, you will never be firm at all. So it's within this context, historically speaking, that Ahaz is visited by Isaiah, the prophet. So let's read again what Isaiah says. Look at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. This is through Isaiah. The Lord speaks to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So God tells Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah to request a sign from him to assure him that God will deliver him, to strengthen his faith in this moment. And God gives Ahaz the freedom to choose. It can be as high as the heavens above or as low as the earth beneath. In other words, as miraculous as you choose, God says, I will show you a sign. I will reassure you by showing you that I'm with you. And look at Ahaz's response in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, on the surface, this sounds like the right answer, a godly response. You know, Moses had commanded the people in Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, right? Jesus quotes this to Satan, Matthew chapter 4, when he's being tempted. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So a casual reader of Isaiah 7 comes to this response of Ahaz, and they're like, Ahaz is simply just trying to be obedient to the law, to be holy. But let's just get below the pietistic talk for just a second about what's really going on here. You know, the sin of putting the Lord to the test is refusing to put your trust in him who has demonstrated faithfulness to you in the past, And asking him once again, I'll believe in you if you do this to demonstrate your faithfulness to me once again. It's like ignoring all that he's done before and asking for one more thing before you trust him completely. You know, in our day, it could sound something like this. Lord, if you'll just write my name in the clouds, then I'll believe in you. If you just do X, Y, and Z, then I will do this. It's asking for a sign to test him when he has proven himself to us over and over and over again. But this is not Ahaz putting the Lord to the test. This is the Lord putting Ahaz to the test. 
Where will he place his trust? Where will he place his faith? You know, the Lord is the one who initiates this sign, right? The Lord is the one who offers the sign to strengthen Ahaz's resolve and trust, not Ahaz requesting a sign. And then based on verse 13, how Isaiah responds here, Isaiah becomes the speaker in verse 13. It appears Ahaz refuses his ground, the grounds here on false piety. He uses the right words, but doesn't mean what he's saying. You know, Ahaz, if you read the story of Ahaz in the first and second Kings, he has a pretty poor track record when it comes to following God. And his, and his desire to not change, he doesn't want to stop worshiping the foreign gods of the other nations. He doesn't want to change. And his desire to not change, he tries to sound a little more godly than he actually is. And it's not very different from times when we're caught in sin, right? <clears throat> we have those initial moments of repentance. And I put repentance in quotes because we're really just sorry we got found out. We're not really repentant. Repentant comes over time. It's demonstrating a life of repentance. But we say things like, I promise I'll change. I promise I'll do better. Aren't we so glad that the Lord is just so gracious and kind and forgiving? We possess this pietistic talk, but in the long run, we have very little desire to change. We're sorry we were caught. We're not sorry enough to repent and to walk in that. It's the same thing. So when Ahaz responds like this, <clears throat> Isaiah blows his mind. Not blows his mind. Blows a gasket. His mind is blown. He can't believe Ahaz responds like this. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? In other words, everyone's losing patience with you, man. Even God's losing patience with you. So if Ahaz refuses a sign from the Lord of his own choosing, God himself will give him a sign that he himself chooses, which he says in verse 14. Read verses 14 through 17. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So the you there in verse 14 is a plural you in the Hebrew. God is speaking to the entire house of David, the royal lineage, right? This kingly line, and he predicts the end of Ahaz's reign in Judah. And the house of David at that time would rather place their faith in worldly powers than in their God. And so God plans to take the kingdom away from them. But even as he takes the kingdom from Ahaz in, in the near term, in the immediate context... One will come from David's line, this son, who will be given the kingdom once again. Now, I mentioned this text to you before, but it's just so important. It's such a key text in the Old Testament. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, this key central text where God makes these royal promises towards David and his descendants. So although the kingdom would be lost in the short term by David's descendants and their lack of faith, it would eventually be given back to this son in verse 14. Now, regarding the immediate context here in Isaiah chapter 7, the immediate context of the prophecy, there's not too much information on this son based on this immediate context, right? We don't know a lot about it. 
We don't know a lot about the mother giving birth to him, right, in this immediate context. If all we have is Isaiah chapter 7, right? You know, the identity of him and the identity of his mother giving birth to him are a mystery when we read this text. You know, it's hard to know how this prophecy is fulfilled in the near term with any certainty. A lot of people have a lot of thoughts on a variety of different things. But we know in the far term, it's fulfilled by Jesus, right? Mary's mother giving birth to Jesus, virgin birth. But in this context, we simply cannot be certain who this son is in Isaiah's day or who before reaching maturity would be living in an Ahaz-less kingdom. But although we don't know too much, we do know a few things with some certainty. One, he'll grow up in poverty. The honey and curds are the food, the diet of one who lives in a devastated land. Two, we know the northern threat from Syria and Israel will be over. It says right there in verse 16 that these two kings will no longer be around. It's referring to Israel and Syria. And then three, we know that a massive disaster was coming upon the house of David. If one thought the civil war and separation between Israel and Judah were a big deal, it's going to be nothing compared to the disaster that's going to fall upon the king and his family after that. But even despite all these uncertainties in the immediate context, the focus of this text is not on the who of the son in Isaiah's day. The focus of the text is on the name of the son in verse 14. She shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, as Matthew states in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 23, Emmanuel means God with us. You know, if we combine this name here in chapter 7, Emmanuel, and then scoot over to the name given to this same son in addition to this one in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we have this pretty incredible picture of who this son is. So flip over a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 6. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Names matter. If we're in the scriptures, names communicate character. And this is true of God himself. I mean, we, we see God's name and his character in the scriptures as one and the same thing. You know, for him to deny his name is to deny himself, and to deny himself is to deny his name. This is Moses in Exodus 34 asking to see God's glory, right? What does God do? He reveals to him his name, his character. And for the son who's coming, these names define what he will be like. You know, Emmanuel, God with us, you know, this coming son will be near to his people. He'll be in close proximity, but near in heart. You know, as the temple in the Old Testament signified God's nearness to his people, so this coming son will dwell among his people. He will be with his people, experience life with his people. He'll celebrate in their joys, weep with them in their pains, sit with them in their questions, be patient with them in their shortcomings. He will be God with us. He'll be wonderful counselor. You know, in times of confusion and chaos, he will lead us, he will guide us, he will offer wisdom in our foolishness and in our questions. His counsel will be wonderful, you know, full of wonder in the one giving us aid in our times of cloudiness and fog. Mighty God, you know, the coming son will not only be sent from God among us, he'll actually be God in the flesh. 
the God who in his might created and currently sustains all things, who governs everything from great galaxies to microscopic organisms with his very word. The God who Isaiah chapter 40 tells us calls out every star by name every single night and forgets not one. He will exercise his great might. This will be the coming son, everlasting father. He'll be our benevolent protector. No matter how little or how much protection our earthly fathers provided for us, the coming son will provide more than the best of dads and the worst of dads. And his protection will not be here today and gone tomorrow. He won't walk out on us or abdicate his responsibility towards us as provider or protector when things get hard. But his love, care, protection, provision will extend forever and ever. It will be everlasting. And he'll be the Prince of Peace. His coming son will bring stillness in our storms. He'll quiet the waters of chaos and doubt. He'll set our restless souls at ease, for they don't find rest until they find it in him. The kingdom over which he reigns as prince would be marked by peace, not war. Devastation and destruction will be a thing of the past, never to be known in his kingdom. But peace will reign, and the sun will bring it. Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, or as we know him, Jesus For his name means he will save his people from their sins. We're saved through faith in his name. Acts 4.12, and there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We make disciples and baptize in his name. Matthew 28.19, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People are healed in his name. Acts 3, 6, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. We worship his name. Romans 15, 9, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. We gather in his name. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, we assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. His name is higher than all names. Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And everyone will bow the knee to this name. Whether you choose to or choose not to, you will bow your knee. Philippians, 1, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's in a name, Emmanuel Church? Well, when it comes to the name of the Son who came and the Son who is coming again, the answer is Everything. Everything is in the name. And it's in his name. It's in his name that we as God's people, as those who placed our faith in the name of Jesus for our salvation, it's in his name that we receive new names. Regardless of how much pride or shame you take in your name now, 
we have received even greater names. We carry with us the names of adopted sons and daughters, the names that are bestowed upon us now, Christians, little Christs. Revelation 22.4 says that his name will be upon us forever. So where are you at this morning? What name are you seeking to make great? Whose name most encapsulates who you are? Who are you seeking to ultimately make proud, to please? The one who gave you your name in this life or the one who gives you a new name for all eternity? And as those who have received new names in Christ, new identities, new characteristics, new destinies, new descriptions of ourselves, we now gather together here this day at Emmanuel Church. God with us, church. Is that true? Is it true? Can people tell God is with us when we gather? Can people tell God has been with us when we leave? Do we look like the one we claim to have been with? One day... Our names will be etched in stone one final time as they put our bodies into the ground. And over time, those names on those stones will wear off. They'll dim. Barring Christ's return, they will fade away. Count Zinzendorf, the great Moravian missionary, said, Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Names do matter, but our names will fade. Only one name matters for eternity. And it's in his name that we place all our hope. So in our lives, let's not waste time making ourselves great. Let us make his name and his name alone great. Let's pray together. Father, I uh, thank you, Lord, that everything that we need, all that we look for and long for and desire, that every single yearning of our souls are found in Jesus. His name satisfies everything in us. And you have revealed to us his name and his person, his character. Lord, I just pray for grace. Pray for the grace and the mercy and the strength to seek to live within his name. When people outside these walls hear the name of Jesus, may they associate true things with that name. Lord, forgive us in those times where we've tried to make a name for ourselves. But our names will, they will fade away, soon to be forgotten by our 
great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. So help us to work towards and strive towards and yearn for those things that do matter, namely the name of Christ proclaimed in all nations. We love you, Lord. We love you. Thank you for your kindness to us as we wait for you. As we wait for you to come back and restore all things that we've lost in this world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.